All right, good morning. Welcome everybody here at our main campus. Welcome to you guys that are joining us online. Just a real quick announcement, Grow Night. Uh, if you were here with us last year, you uh, know what Grow Night's about. Um, we're gonna be explaining it more in the up and coming weeks. Uh, so we, if, if you have been involved, we'd love for you to continue to be involved. Again, opportunity for you to get to know more people here at the church and get out of these rows and get into um, some circles. So if you want to know more about Grow Night, go on our app, or if you even want to sign up for some of the stuff that's going on, some of the classes that are in there, you can go on to Grow Night, you know, on the app, and you can get or see what we're doing, and you can get involved that way. All right, so we're at the last two weeks of Revelation, so if you've been following along, um, you know, we've been going through the book of Revelation, and, you know, we're in week 23 um, and so we're coming to an end, and last week we talked about, so all of Revelation is the culmination of it's all going to be over someday, and when it's all over, you're going to spend eternity somewhere, right? So we need to be processing what does that eternity look like. And so in wrapping up Revelation, what I want to talk to you about today is what's heaven going to be like, right? And what is it? look like and, and how are we going to be a part of it and what's going to happen right after we die. And I want to try to take an opportunity today to clear up some misconceptions, you know, that I think are out there of what happens and what goes on, but also give you some foundational beliefs. Like this is what scripture says and this is what it talks about when it comes to eternity. Now, here's the crazy part is, is that if you talk to most people, um, tell me about eternity, Tell me about what heaven will be like, right? And I think for most people, they would act excited. Now, again, I could be a little bit off here, but I think a lot of people would act excited, like, I'm so excited to go to heaven. I'm like, why are you so excited? And they'd be like, well, you know, there's um, streets of gold, and, and um, I'll get to see people that I know, right? And, and they want to be excited about it, but not they're not so excited that they're like, oh my gosh, let me tell you what it's about and you need to come and be a part of it, right? Because we know that, have you ever been to a place and you show up there and, and it was like this when we went out west. It was like we go out west and you see some of the beauties of Glacier National Park and you're like, I gotta bring somebody back here. Like it doesn't do, pictures don't do it justice, right? Like some of the places that you've seen on this earth, the first thing you think about is, I got to bring somebody here. They got to see it, you know, because you've clearly understood what it was. You're also then motivated to get people to either come and see it or be a part of it. Would we agree with that? Now, part of the problem is, is that part of our understanding of eternity goes as far as this. I don't really understand heaven, but I know hell's worse, so we should probably just go to heaven. To anybody, right? Like we don't really have a true understanding and most of the reason that people say we don't is because they're like the Bible doesn't talk about it, right? The Bible doesn't really talk about heaven and the Bible doesn't really describe what heaven would be like. And so because the Bible doesn't, you go out and read books, 90 minutes in, that's what it's called, right? Like 90 minutes in heaven, you know, somebody that went there and you'll take, again, we won't explore scripture, but we'll read, you know, a story about, you know, maybe somebody that ended up there that we could learn from. Because there is a fascination, I think, with people. What's it going to be like? You know, how am I going to spend that time there? So here's what we're going to do in the next two weeks to the best of my ability. One, to help you understand the difference between the intermediate heaven, which is right now. So there's an intermediate heaven 
if you die today in an intermediate hell, which we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but it's, these are places that you go after you die, but it's not your final home. Does that make sense? Right? So there's the intermediate heaven, and then there's what we're going to talk about next week in Revelation 21 is there's a new earth that you're going to spend all eternity on, and we're going to go into some detail, like what are you going to do on the new earth? What's it going to look like? How are things going to you know, happen? Today, we're going to look at the intermediate heaven, right, and what it looks like, and why is it important for us to understand it? So that's the first part of it. So we're going to kind of give you a theology of eternity and heaven and the intermediate heaven then we're going to talk about what happens one minute after you die. So as soon as you die and, you know, breath goes from your lungs, what happens to us? What, you know, as Christian people, what can we expect? What can we expect to see? We're going to also look into what happens to people who are not believers. You know, what do they see the second after they die? Then we're going to go into the idea of misconceptions, right? Because I think there are a lot of misconceptions on what happens, and I think some of them is, are preached as theology inside of the church, right? And so I think we need to clear up the misconceptions of what Scripture says, because this is what we have to know as Christian people. We rely on our truth based upon Scripture, right? Don't add to it. Don't take it away. We say if the Scripture is, the Bible that we have gives us truth about what eternity is, just because we don't understand it doesn't mean we have to add to it. Right, so we need to make sure that we get that. So look at the misconceptions. Then we're going to talk about in the intermediate heaven, what can we know people are doing right now? Do you ever wonder that? Like people that have passed on, like people that have went before. You ever wonder what they're doing? Like what's going on? So we're going to look at a brief, like here's what we know from Scripture of what people are doing in the intermediate heaven today. Then this is my hope, right, because this is really my hope with everything. Once you do know and understand truth, we should be motivated to do something about it, right? So if we clearly understand eternity, if we clearly understand what the intermediate heaven is going to look like, how does that change the trajectory of our life? Like what should be the things that we're going to do about it? Because now we know what happens to people right after they die. So a quick uh, note, you know, that... Um, there's a lot of scripture today, and it's for a very specific reason. One, I want to broaden your perspective when people say, well, it really doesn't talk much about eternity or heaven. I want you to know that it is in multiple different places that gives us views of what heaven's really going to look like or where our theology can come from. And I wanted you to see that it's throughout all of scripture, right, so that we can see each of that. So, if you want to go back, here's my suggestion. Like, there's going to be, all of these are going to be on the screen, but... It's going to be hard to keep up because we got to get through this, and I want to make sure that we get this done before we can move on next week. So there's a lot of it. So maybe take notes. You might not be able to keep up in your Bible, but take notes, and then you can go back and you can research them further, you know, after the service or when you want to go deeper into it. So the first one I want you to, you know, look at is um, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. And the reason that we want to do 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10 is here's what everybody in this room knows uh, or should know, 100% of the people in this room is one day or one hour or one step closer to the end of their life, right? Like today, you woke up, you're one step closer to your life being over, right? Like for all of us, and we can look at it and we can look at death in multiple different ways. And I think this is how most people look at it. It's either too short 
right? Anybody ever feel that way, like their life was too short and I didn't get enough time? Nobody knows anybody? Yeah, like life was too short. Like we should have got more time. Like this is the way that I feel. Like we should have got more opportunities or they shouldn't have suffered or it shouldn't have, you know what I mean? Like we go through these ideas when we look at death and when we see death, we look at it and we're like, this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. Anybody? Right, here's what we know, right? You being created beings by God, right? Death is unnatural. You were created to live forever and death is an unnatural thing. And when we look at it, we've got to decide how we're gonna to respond to it, right? And so Paul gives us a theology of eternity that I think is important for us to understand. Like I think he gives us this idea when you're thinking of eternity and you're thinking of death, it's a base theology that each one of us would have. In fact, the second Corinthians scripture that we're gonna look at, you probably heard it in a lot of funerals, right? Because this is something that's, that's talked about or something that's read. So here's what it says. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. So here's the first piece that he tells all of us that are here today as Christian people, right? Here's what he's telling you is naturally your body and the things around you are decaying. Your earthly tent is going away. The natural response for people is when your tent starts to go away or the things around you start to go away is I gotta hold on to it. I don't wanna lose it. I wanna make sure I get a little bit more and I don't wanna miss out and I wanna have. Anybody? Right, like when I just need a little bit more time and I need a little bit more and we need to make it so we can make it through. You wanna hold on to the earthly peace, right? And the reason is, is because you don't think your heavenly home is better. True, right? Like you're saying there can't be anything better than this and there can't be anything better than this, right? Our earthly home. So the first theology that he teaches us as Christian people is, is that don't get too much in love with what you can put your hands on and what you can touch because you can be confident as a Christian person that I'm creating another home for you. And you can be confident as somebody who has lost somebody here on this earth that I have a home for them, and that you will see them again someday, right? Like he gives us this theology because he wants us as Christian people to not get so caught up in this earthly tent. You know what you should be reminded of every time that you wake up and something doesn't work right? None of you young people have to worry about it. But every once in a while when you get older, Things don't work the way they used to work, right? And it's just a reminder, I'm like, this is not my home, right? And I've always said to Christian people, you know, one of the things that we should do when we see tragedy in this world is we shouldn't scream at God, although I have, you know what I mean? Like when things happen, I've had those conversations with God, like this isn't the way that it's supposed to be, but I need to land on that comment right there. This isn't the way that it's supposed to be. I can't wait to get home. Right, earthly tent, things around us, reminds us, Paul gives us that theology. Then he goes on in verse two when he sends this. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up 
uh, maybe swallowed up by life. So again, it's this wrestling, like, you know, we want to think about eternity, but we don't want to give up what's here. He says there's going to be this constant struggle of, you know, you want, to, you want to go home, but at the same time you want to be here, and there's going to be this back and forth. And ultimately he's saying that we need to try to fight through that mindset, and this is the way that you're going to do it in verse 5. It says, now that uh, know that the one who fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So when you get to these points where you're finding this wrestling with, because as a Christian, this is what you're going to realize. We as Christian people should long for a home that's not here. Now, truly that's difficult to do because we fall in love with the world. Don't you think that's true? Like we fall in love with what's going on around us. So it's really difficult to think about, I can't wait for my earthly home because they're like, I just want a little bit more time with my kids. I just want a little bit more time. I want to get married. I want to have kids. You know what I mean? There's always going to be something, but something that you want to be able to do. And so we tend to fall in love with this earth and we tend to fall in love with the things of this earth. So he says the one way that you can get your mind right or get yourself right is there's a Holy Spirit deposited inside of you as a guarantee for what is to come. So if you're struggling with this idea of falling in love with the things of the world, lean into the Holy Spirit, which is a deposit to remind you this isn't your home. Right? That's what the Holy Spirit's supposed to do for us, that you can't get done in the world. Nobody can be like, well, you know what? It's just like me saying today, you shouldn't think of this place as your home and you should long for, you know, the kingdom to come. And you're like, I know, but I can't. You know how hard it is to get over the things of this world? It is. The only way you're going to get to that place is this deposit of the Holy Spirit supernaturally, not naturally, supernaturally is going to change something inside of you. Right? And allow you to fall in love with what is to come and not what is. Right? So he gives us that theology. Now, he also goes on and says this in verse 6. Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. That's what the Spirit gives us. For we live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, that I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, because of that, when you get that, that from the Holy Spirit, like this is what he's saying to me and, and I'm getting to this place, he says, so now make this your goal. So he says, so that we can make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. And this is why. You know why we should get to this place where the purpose of our life should be to please the Lord? Something we talked about last week, here's what he says. This is why. For we must all, as Christian people, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us from the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Deposit of the Holy Spirit, yearn for what is to come and understand this. It's not just this idea of, oh, I'm gonna yearn for what's to come and so I'm gonna sit around and wait till I get to that place. You know what you're gonna do? You're gonna work until that time comes with the idea that your life is gonna be judged someday. But the idea of, yes, eternity's coming, yes, this is not my home, but I still have purpose on this earth, and I need to do something about it. 
And I need to know that my life's being recorded. And so that I can then know and understand that I'm going to be judged for all the things done in the body, good and bad. Right? So the theology of eternity, Paul gives us this. But what I want to then focus on, if this is our foundation of you know, eternity and theology and the things that Paul puts together for what we should be thinking about, what can we know about what happens the minute that you die? Right? What can we know based upon Scripture? Now, there are going to be multiple different Scriptures that you could pull in, but I'm going to pull in a few, and again, you can be supported in other places. But here's what we know right away, that when you die, you will immediately be in the presence of God. Right? So when somebody dies, we know immediately that they go into the presence of God. One of the Scriptures that supports that is found in Luke 23, 39 through 43 says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save, your, uh, save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly for getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, when? today, you will be with me in paradise. Again, one scripture that supports that where there isn't this like waiting period, right? That when you die, you stand in the presence of God as a believer, right? And we know, you know, based upon other scriptures, but this one again supports from Jesus's mouth saying, today, I'm going to see you again. Today, we're going to be in paradise. So we can be guaranteed that when a person dies in the intermediate heaven, that they stand in the presence of God. But we can also understand, and what we talked about last week, but what about an unbeliever? What about somebody that isn't, you know, and hasn't put their faith in Jesus Christ? What happens to them? Well, we can know the same thing, that they are then sent to constant torment or into a place called hell, right? And interesting that the story that we're going to look at today, Luke 16, 19 through 31, supports this idea and what's going on well, what we talked about and what we talked about last week. So Luke 16, 19 through 31, a story. It says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man died and was buried in Hades where, his, uh, where he was in torment and he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to there cannot, nor can anyone cross over from here, uh, from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, father, send Lazarus to my family for our five brothers let him warn them so that they will uh, not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. 
He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they, do, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So here's what we know right away. Somebody who is not a believer in Jesus Christ does not get a second chance. Immediately, they're placed to, took to a place called Hades or a place called hell. You know, And in that place, interesting, we, we talked in some depth last week about this, but in this place, one of the things that's very evident that I think all of us know is, is people are in torment. Do you see what he asked for when he's in there? One of the first things he asked for, can somebody just take, can they take their finger, dip it in water, and just put it on my tongue? Right, just to give me a brief sense of relief. Right, so we know that there's that. But you know the other thing that to me is very interesting? You know the other thing that he asked for? Can somebody go back and tell the people don't, that I love not to come here? Isn't that interesting? That the thing that he's thinking about is he knows that his eternity can't change, but if somebody would just go back and tell my brothers, if somebody would just go back and tell my family, right, that, that this is what hell is really like, because I told you, part of the misconceptions that we run in today is people who have made decisions not to believe and just say, I'm just going to go to hell, they don't know what hell is like, because people that experience it say, don't let anybody that I love ever come here, right? So, in this, we know the second after you die, if you're a believer, that you're going to stand in front of Jesus and you're going to be in his presence. If you're not a believer, you're going to be spending eternity in Hades. Now, let's clear up some misconceptions, right? Because I think that there are misconceptions when it comes to what happens right after you die. And I think it comes out of an idea of a false theology. Now, I don't think very many people want to talk about it because it ruffles the feathers of a lot of people. Right, Because people are going to be, at the end of the day, who really cares as long as they end up in the same place? Right, So as long as people end up in heaven, why does it matter that this is what people believe? As long as they just believe that somehow, some way, they end up there. Now, the reason is, is because I want you to understand that this theology that Scripture talks about, or theology that, that we believe in that comes from Scripture... If it's skewed in any way, we shouldn't look at it and just be like, oh, it's whatever. People can just believe whatever they want, right? And here's the other thing I want you to know. So young people, listen to me for just a second. So part of our problem today that we identified a long time ago is, is that kids grow up inside of a church, and they usually go to children's ministry, and they go to youth, but then usually when they get their license or they go to college, they walk away from the church, and the church is no longer important. Now, you remember how we talked about that? Statistically, right now, 75% of all young people are walking away from the church. You know, one of the reasons it's identified is because for the first time in their life, their faith was challenged and they didn't have any answers. So the first time in their life, they went to college and somebody said, well, why do you believe that the moment you die that you're going to stand in front of the presence of Jesus Christ? You know what they say? Because mom and dad said it or the preacher said it. Anybody? Like, it's really not your own. Like, you haven't taken it your own. You haven't, you haven't dug into it and made it your own, and you have no way to know what else is out there. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of what else is out there so that you can have an idea how to defend your faith, right? So one of the things that's popular, especially, I don't know if it's popular everywhere else, but at least in the places that I have been, which is overseas, you know, in, in places that are predominantly Catholic, Right? So when I would go overseas and we would, you know, spend some time in some of these South American countries, there was a lot of predominantly Catholic people at the time. And then also in this community, 
uh, in this community and surrounding communities, there's a predominant Catholic belief system. And now in most people inside of the Christian church, they would say Catholicism and Christianity are the same thing. Right? It's just one's a different denomination. They would look at it and say, like, there's the non-denominational and then there's the denominational, right? And the Catholic Church is another denomination just like the Methodist Church, right? So here's what I want you to see or here's what I want you to understand. One of the misconceptions that I think that we need to deal with is the Catholicism belief system that there is a place called purgatory, Right? So in Catholicism, there is a belief system that would say that the moment that you die, you cannot stand in the presence of God. Right? That you have to go to a place where you then can be purified, where that purification can happen so that you can stand in front of the presence of God. Right? That's the belief inside of Catholicism, that you have to get yourself right. Now, they take it, and it's based upon these ideas of venial sins and mortal sins. Like, I can't go into the great depths of what those things are, but if you die with unforgiven sin, a venial sin, you know, one that's not considered grave, right? And that grave is determined by what they've decided grave is and not really based upon what Scripture says grave is, right? So they come up with this is the venial sin. If these venial sins, if you die for them, you go into a place called purgatory. And in purgatory, you can be, certain things can happen that can pray you out of or get you out of purgatory so that you can stand in front of the presence of God. Does that make sense? Right? So you can't stand in front of the presence of God. You have to go to a place called purgatory. Now, why is that so important and why do we need to study it? Because here's what I want you to see, and we're going to read where it comes from here in a second. But as a Christian, right, as a person that, that believes in Christianity and the Bible, here's what we believe, right? This is one of the foundational belief systems. We believe that Jesus Christ died for all of our sins, Right? Past, right, thank goodness, <laughs> present, and future. Now, what's different in the view of purgatory? What sin is not forgiven? Future. Future sin that you did not ask for forgiveness for, so now you have that sin in your life, and so you cannot stand in front of the presence of God because you still have unforgiven sin. Is this making any sense to anybody? No? <laughs> right. That you have this unforgiven sin. Now, the important part of understanding this is, is because this isn't just a, well, you go for a place for a while, and then you go to another place where we all end up in heaven. This is a core foundational belief system of what you believe about the blood of Jesus Christ. The foundational atonement. Now, where does it come from? Well, it comes from the Apocrypha in 2 Maccabees, right? So 2 Maccabees, if you've ever looked inside of a, a Catholic Bible, they have what's called the Apocrypha, which are books between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Apocrypha is stuff that was not put into the original canonization of Scripture. And one of the reasons was is the things that were in the Apocrypha did not line up completely with Old and New Testament, right? So it was left out of the canonization of Scripture. Right, that's why the Apocrypha was left out. But inside of the Catholic Bible, they have Maccabees in there, which gives them the idea of why 
purgatory should exist. So this is, you're not gonna see it on the screen, but this is 2 Maccabees 12, 42 through 45. So you can look it up in the Apocrypha another time. But here's what he says. And they turned to prayer, beseeching that the sin which had been committed might be wholly blotted out. And the noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened because of the sin of those who had fallen. He also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachma of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account, taking account of the resurrection. For if we were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to be looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was holy and pious thought. Therefore, this is really the important part of where the theology comes from. Therefore, he being, you know, Judas Maccabees made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from sin. Now, I want you to hear this. Who made the atonement? Those people praying for who? The dead, right? Here's the question. Can we make a sin atonement for somebody who's already dead? Right? Well, the idea of purgatory is Once somebody dies, we on earth can do things to help atone for their sin. Does that make sense? And here's how you can do it, right? If somebody is in purgatory, this is the way you can help atone for their sin. You can show up to mass, right? So you get, I'm not going to try to trivialize it, but you can get points because you show up to mass, right? You can pay money for prayers, right? Do you see how they collected the money? Right, they collected the money, and part of collecting the money was to be put towards this so that you could be prayed out of, you know, or atoned for. So you can pray, you can give, and you can do works, right? Your good works will atone for the sin of the people that are in purgatory. And in that atonement, over time, who knows how much time, once you finally get perfected, Is this making sense? Once you get perfected, once you get cleansed, then you can enter into the intermediate heaven and stand in front of Jesus because now you are made perfect by what? The atonement that came from people. Now, listen, I know why people do this. You know why religion is created? Religion is created because people can't understand a supernatural Jesus. Because here's what I want to tell you. Listen to me. That makes zero sense why I should ever be able, when I die, to stand in front of a perfect God, sinless and made right. Amen to anybody who knows me, right? Like anybody that knows me and knows the way that I live my life and know that I sin, you know, and I make mistakes, and I, I should never deserve to stand in front of a holy God. I am someday going to die with unforgiven sin in my life. Thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ. Thank you for a supernatural work that doesn't have to be done through religion, right? When we don't understand what we create is religion to take a supernatural God and reduce him to something you can understand. Because doesn't, make, doesn't it make complete sense that if somebody dies with sin in their life, they need to work it off before they could ever stand in front of God. 
right? I mean, in our thinking, that makes sense. Like somebody needs to get it right. Somebody needs to do something to be able to get it right. Our mind works that way. So religion satisfies something that can't be explained, right? So create purgatory because it makes complete sense that we should pray those things out. And here's what I don't want you to miss, right? Because too many people inside of that theology, you know, yeah, I mean, whether you do or don't believe it, they fall into the, some of these same categories is that we need to understand that the way that you're going to be forgiven and the way that you're gonna stand in front of a uh, uh, holy God someday is because of the blood of Jesus Christ, not based upon what anybody did. Your decision is your decision. You hear me? It's not what your mom and dad did. It's not what somebody else is doing and it's not what somebody else is praying. It's your personal decision and your personal relationship that allows you to stand in front of a holy God because he forgave your sins. And no matter how much somebody is praying for you, hear me, listen, no matter how much somebody is praying for you, their prayers do not atone for your sin. Never. Don't get caught up in this belief system that somehow we can pray people into right standing with God, right? The only thing that puts us into right standing with God is Jesus. So again, one of the misconceptions, and we know this, not just, again, not on my own opinion, but in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, here's what we know and here's what it says. For it is by grace alone that you've been saved through faith. It is not from ourselves. It is a gift from God not by works, so that no one can boast. So we can know, based upon Scripture, purgatory doesn't line up with Scripture says, because again, it says, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Jesus alone, right? So we know that those things can't line up. Here's the other thing, soul sleep. Anybody ever heard that talked about? Jehovah Witness, seven-day Adventist, this idea of soul sleep where, you know, somebody dies and then they're like, separated, you know, their soul separated from the body, and they don't get reunited again until, you know, Jesus Christ comes back in the second coming, and so essentially there's all this time goes by, and you just don't really know that it's time, but you also don't stand in front of the presence of God until he comes back. Anybody heard of that? Yeah, so that, that's a big popular belief is this whole idea of soul sleep. And so what we want you to see inside of Scripture, and this is just one of those instances that can refute this idea, is in Matthew 7, 1 through 3. Here's what he says. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and the brothers of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before him. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So what we know is that those people are people that had died before and went on. They weren't in soul sleep, right? And they just weren't a soul. Somehow, they had this body in the intermediate heaven where they could talk, right? Where they could do those types of things. So we know that that's a misconception on soul sleep. So what are you gonna be doing? So in the intermediate heaven, what are some things that you're going to be doing, right? Well, here's one of the things that we know that you're gonna be doing, you're gonna be worshiping. Now, think about this for a second, because I think there's some people in this room be like, I ain't never gonna be worshiping, I don't even like to sing. <laughs> Any guys out there that are like, you're the guy that hums? Mm, right, yeah, some of us are hummers, right? And some of us are like, you know, I look around, I don't know why people are raising their hands, I, you know, I don't know why. In the intermediate heaven, I think you're gonna be singing. I think you're gonna be raising your hands. I think you're gonna be clapping. I think you're gonna be worshiping and you're not really gonna care, right? 
So all of you guys that are kind of like, it's okay, you can be that way here. Someday you're going to be raising your hands. Someday you're going to be clapping. So you know what? You might as well just try it here. <laughs> just get used to it. That's why I tell people, you know why I sit in the front row? Not because I just have to walk up here. It's because I love to sing, but you would hate to hear it. So I don't want you to be in front of me because if you hear it, you're going to have a view of me that you don't like, right? So I'm like, I'm going to sit up here so nobody can see. But he says we're going to worship. Revelations 19.1 says, After this I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For the true and just are, judged, uh, true and just are his judgments. His, he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen. Hallelujah. And the voice came from the throne saying, Praise God and all of our servants uh, for you who fear him, both great and small. So we're out of time today. So the worship team's going to come back up. We'll pick some of this up next week as we do it. But let me help you end with this. What else are they going to be doing? They're going to be watching. Right Now, I know for some of us, this is a difficult thought for the people that have passed on. Can they really see what's going on in the earth? Because I don't know if I want them to always see. Anybody? Like, have you thought about that? Like, sometimes I don't want them to see what I'm doing. I don't want them to see how I'm acting. So this whole idea is because we can't understand it, we did, we're like, they must not be able to see anything. But we know, based upon Scripture, in the intermediate heaven, they're getting a view of what's going on down on this earth. You know how we know that? Two things. It says, Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us draw off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out, of, out for us. So Hebrews 12, 1 tells us there's a great cloud of witnesses watching you today, cheering you on. I'm not so sure that those great cloud of witnesses might be the loved ones who passed on. But they are watching you, cheering you on, saying, I can't wait till you're here someday. Keep going, finish the race, finish well. It's all gonna be over soon, and you're gonna be with me. Keep going, right? And you know, that, that, and I can just believe that there are those great clouds of witnesses of people, and then we can also know that by Luke 15, 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. There is this picture that they are seeing what's going on in heaven or on this earth today. And you know what? Some of the things that they're really caring about, whether you're reaching people. You know what they're watching for? Are you living on purpose? They're not watching for how we're doing with religion. Did you see that? Right? They're not sitting there saying like, oh, wow, let's see, let's rejoice over you showed up for church today. Nothing, I'm glad you showed up. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you're, I don't mean it that way, but do you see what they're seeing? Right, do, they, do we understand that in the, this, this witnessing of what's going on in the earth, what's going to cause a great celebration is the reaching of those who were lost, who are going to spend an eternity, a Christless eternity, in a place called hell, and the whole heaven is going to rejoice when one, just one person, 
makes a decision for Jesus Christ. Now, we'll pick this up next week, but here's some of the things that I want you to think about. So think about this great cloud of witnesses that is watching you today and cheering you on to run your race. Think about a heaven that is waiting to rejoice for the ones who are saved. Think about we as Christian people who should live as if this is not our home. See, you can love the things of this world. I've said that. Like I said in the first first service, I'm so excited, like hunting season's coming up. Like I'm excited to get in the woods. I'm excited to be in the tree stand. I'm excited to shoot something. Like I can love the things of the world, right? But I can't love them more than my heavenly home. I can just say, you know what? I can sit in my tree stand and say, God, thank you for the gift that you've given me, but I still am ready to come home because all of the beauty that I see today can not be better than what it'll be like someday. I can still enjoy this earth, but I can't love it more than my home to come. And I can't love the things of this world more than the people of this world. You hear me? Heaven is going to rejoice because people on this earth care about people who are not saved. You see, God wants you to become a better person. You know how we work on that all the time. I need to read my Bible more. I need to do devotions more. I need to stop cussing. I need to stop. You know, we work on becoming better people. And that's good. But the angels are going to rejoice when you live on purpose. When you live as if people are not getting tomorrow. As if your conversation could be the difference for eternity. And so the question for all of us, what are we doing? Now that we know and now that we understand, how does that change each one of us? Will you stand so I can pray for you? Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the glimpse. We just took such a small one today, but we thank you for the glimpse of what eternity is. We thank you for the reminder of how we should be living based upon knowing that this isn't our own. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will stir inside of us what you promised, which is a Holy Spirit given for us as a guarantee for what is to come. Today, as we sing these songs, stir something in the people. Let the Spirit raise up in a way like never before to give us a picture or a yearning for our home to come. But not just a yearning for our home to come, but with a purpose to live out while we're still here on this earth. Heavenly Father, stir something inside of us. We love you. In his name we pray. Amen. It was my cross you bore so I could live in the freedom you died for. And now my life is yours, and I will sing of your goodness forevermore. And worthy is your name, Jesus. You deserve the praise 
of praise exalted above all things my god you are my god your splendor in majesty your wonder fills everything my god you are my god holy is the lord holy is the lord almighty seated on the throne seated on the throne of glory high and lifted up your presence fills the temple when we worship you
Do you ever have those moments inside of a service where you're like, the presence of God is so powerful? And what he wants you to see is the glimpse of what is to come. You see, we try to hold on to this. This like, oh, the presence of God, and it's so incredible, and I never want it to end, but then we go out, and it goes away, right? But the glimpse is to give you hope for what is to come, where it will never go away, and it'll go on and on and on for all of eternity. And so for each one of us, this that you feel today, the presence of God, is not only to give you a window or a picture into what is to come, but for you to realize that there are people out there that need that today. There are people out there that are trying to figure out living inside of a hopeless world where the presence that they're feeling is not the presence of God. And when we get a glimpse into heaven, it's not just for our own reassurance, but it's for those who don't have it yet. And so my question to us as a church is what will we do? How will we respond? And how will we take what we see and what we have and give it to other people? because that's a world that is waiting. So thanks again for joining us here at our main campus. Thanks for joining us online. We'll see you guys next week.